0: I hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Hey, it's good to be back with you guys. How are you feeling? Good? Excited to be back? It's good? During the um, briefing uh, at the, before the service started, we were praying and I uh, just had a picture of um, almost like a rain cloud, like heaviness. Uh, that I felt like almost, you know, being in lockdown for for the six, seven, eight weeks, whatever we we were in it, it's kind of left some of us perhaps feeling a bit heavy. But I just saw this picture of of the Lord just bringing His fire and shining through those rain clouds, burning that rain away. And so um, my prayer is that uh, even if you're still in that place tonight, um, that even by the end of this service, that you'd really walk out of this place with some hope tonight, and I think that's something that the Lord wants to do. So you don't have to do anything to earn that, You've just got to be willing to receive, and, um, and I'll pray for you a little bit later as well into that. But I am really looking forward to tonight, and that is because we are beginning a brand new series tonight. And uh, what we're going to be doing over the next five weeks is we are going to be exploring the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther. Now I have never studied the book of Esther prior to this, and uh, most of what I knew about it actually came from a really great episode of Veggie Tales that I watched a number of years back, uh, which is, uh, uh, if I'm honest, is probably the show that gave me most of the foundations of my Bible knowledge, and it also, I think, really instilled in me a value for a precious cheeseburger, which uh, is a good thing. You know, you can learn a lot from an asparagus and a grape about God. But uh, over the last week or two, I have been looking at this book and I've been exploring some of the themes and the message and the interesting characters that are contained within its pages, and I've just been really struck by what a beautiful story it is and how it reveals something about the God we serve in a really unique way. You see, the book of Esther is unique in that it is the only book of the Bible that does not mention God directly. Now, on its face, this is kind of strange for a book that's in the Bible. But as the story progresses, God's unseen hand and his working behind the scenes appears to come into focus. And so the aim of this series is to explore the message of the book of Esther, which seems to be that whether God is seen or unseen that he is always working to bring about his purposes. Now, the book of Esther is structured in a very unique way that is different than perhaps some of the other books of the Bible that you might have read. It's written in what they call a chiastic format. And that's really just a fancy way of saying that the story moves in a certain order until it reaches a a pivot point. And then it, it begins to move almost in a reflected order. So what do I mean by that? Uh, if I've got that up on the screen behind me, you can see the story of Esther begins by highlighting the greatness of the Persian king Xerxes, and the book ends by highlighting the greatness of a man named Mordecai. The story contains a plot to destroy the Jewish people, and it also contains a plan to save the Jewish people. And there in the middle, there's a pivot point where the fortunes of a wicked man named Haman are suddenly reversed against him. And so in this way, the story is written a bit like a mirror, where the different parts of the story seem to reflect one another. And that's pretty cool. The book of Esther is a story of God bringing about a complete reversal of the schemes of a pretty bad dude. And it shows how God is far more powerful than even the seemingly most powerful people on this earth. And that's good news, because it fills us with hope that the Adolf Hitlers and the Pol Potts and the Joseph Stalins of this world are not nearly as strong as they might seem. Though God is not mentioned directly in this book, The evidence of his working behind the scenes is interwoven throughout the book of Esther. And it reveals to us that whether God is seen or unseen, that we can be confident that he is always working to bring about his purposes. So before we jump in, let's take a moment to bow our heads. Let's ask God to come and meet us as we open the book of Esther tonight. So Holy Spirit, we invite you in this space to come, and Lord, I pray for you to bring your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, Lord that as we open your word tonight, that you would reveal treasures and help us to see new insights uh, Lord that we 've never encountered before, and Lord, whether this is the first time we 're coming to the book of Esther or Whether this is something that we've studied extensively, Lord, I pray that we would find fresh manna, that we'd find fresh revelation as we approach this text. And Lord, I pray that it would speak to us, and Holy Spirit, that you would uh, be whispering to our hearts as we hear what the book contains and as we explore the story tonight. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Have you ever experienced something that seemed like it could have been a coincidence, but when taken together with a series of other coincidences alongside that coincidence, that you began to see that actually maybe it was God's hand working in your life? I remember when Sarah and I were coming to the end of our time in Kansas City, which is where we lived before we came here. And I was finishing up my last few months of Bible school and we had a sense that God might be calling us to move to New Zealand. And so we had uh, spent three months up in Todonga doing an internship and uh, we kind of assumed that if God was going to send us back to New Zealand that we would go back there because we didn't know anybody else anywhere else in New Zealand. Uh, But for some reason Todonga just didn't feel right to us. And so it was this weird time where we We felt like, yes, we feel like we're meant to go to New Zealand, but not to the place that we were. And so it was this just kind of strange back and forth time. But then it was kind of odd. We started having these interesting coincidences where we started meeting people from New Zealand in Kansas City. But the people that we weren't meeting, or the people that we were meeting, they weren't from uh, Tonanga. They were from a city called Christchurch. And so we ended up having coffee with one of these guys and he was sharing with Sarah and I about his time living in the city and we found ourselves just with tears uh, just coming down as we were listening to this man talk about his life in this city called Christchurch that we knew hardly anything about. And that was was interesting. And God began to speak to us really clearly. I asked God that if he wanted us to move to Christchurch that he would send someone to tell me that they had a vision of me flying. And the next day, I got a call from someone, and they shared with me that they had a vision of me flying. Not only that, they said, you were flying over this beautiful blue ocean to a land of mountains in the middle of the sea. Sarah was praying for God to speak to her about moving, and she felt like God gave her the Scripture, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10, which says, come away, my love, and leap on the mountains. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Get a little choked up just remembering it. And the next day, a, um, a man came up to her in our church and he said, I feel like God is speaking Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 10. And he's saying, it's time to come away. And then a month or so later, we were selling a mattress. It's an awful mattress. We should have just been giving it away for free, <laughs> actually. We should have paid them. It would have been a favor. Uh, so we're selling this mattress and this girl comes by to pick it up. And she has one of those... Uh, punamu, the green stone, necklaces on. This was ah, oh. I said, are you a Kiwi? And she said, no, I'm not. She said, but I just got back from Christchurch. Of course you did. And so um, this gal kind of threw her. She ended up introducing us to our first contacts here in Christchurch, which uh, led us to finding a house, a community, and ultimately this church. Now, if you were to take each of these Specific happenings on their own, you might have been able to chalk it up to pure coincidence. But when you take them together, you begin to see that actually they're a part of this pattern that revealed the hand of God and the thread of a message that he was interweaving throughout all of these different events. And if you've walked with Jesus for a while, you also might have some instances where you have seen something similar, where you've had these series of what could have been a coincidence, but then in hindsight you actually began to see that this was actually God's hand moving in your life and he was leading you and guiding you. And maybe you didn't even really know it at the start. And it's this unseen yet also seen aspect of God's nature that is put on display in the book of Esther. And as we explore the first two chapters of this book tonight, it's my hope that you will see that whether God is seen or unseen, that he's always working to bring about his purposes. So, let's jump in. But first, let me give you a little bit of context. Our story begins deep within the heart of the ancient Persian Empire. The bedecked capital city, a city called Susa, is the seat of a Persian king named Ahasuerus, uh, which is how it's pronounced in Hebrew, but many scholars believe that this is uh, the historical figure known as Xerxes I. Now Xerxes was a king who ruled over a sprawling empire that reached from modern day Ethiopia all the way across the Middle East to India. So it was really, really big. And they didn't have internet and they didn't have jet planes back then. So it's pretty impressive. Now he was a man who couldn't seem to get enough of the gold, the girls, and the glory. And he seemed to enjoy showing off his extravagance and his wealth to other people. Now at this time, the Jewish people had been living in exile from the time that the Babylonians had taken over. And the Persians then conquered the, uh, the Babylonians after that. And then some of the Jews had returned to Jerusalem with the figure known as Ezra, but that's a bit of a different story. Uh, but the majority were still living in exile in Persia at the time. And uh, in some of your Bibles, Xerxes' name is listed as Ahasuerus, uh, but we're going to be reading out of the NIV tonight, which I've got to be honest with you, i picked mostly so that I don't have to say Ahasuerus too much, uh, because the NIV calls him Xerxes, Uh, so that's a really profound reason. (laughs) But uh, let's take a look, starting in verse 1 of the book of Esther. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the, princes of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all of the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of whites and blue linen fastened with cords of White linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. This guy's pad was pretty flash. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So King Xerxes is a guy that loves to party. And the idea comes to him one day to throw the party of all parties and so he decides to invite all of the nobles and the governors and the princes and the military generals from every corner of his empire and to invite them to come to this big party in Susa. So they come. And for 180 days he shows off to him, off to them his marble and gold studded lifestyle. And undoubtedly at this event there were the finest foods the finest entertainment, and the finest wine flowing over the course of this six-month-long party. Which begs the question, who was running the country while the entire government was drunk for six months? (laughs) Anyway, after this, Xerxes uh, Xerxes decides that it's not enough to throw a party just for his government officials. No, he is... A king of the people, he wants to throw a party for all of the people of Susa, from the least to the greatest. And so for seven days, the wine and the music and the dancing flows, and everyone's invited. Well, hold up. This is the ancient world. And this big party in the king's garden was actually for the boys only. And so he had his wife, Queen Vashti, hold a banquet for the women inside the royal palace. Maybe that's because having large groups of men and free-flowing alcohol in one place is usually a recipe for some pretty stupid things to happen. So after seven days of more heavy drinking, I imagine perhaps a lighthearted dispute begins to form over whose province has the most beautiful women in all of Persia. And I can imagine King Xerxes standing to his feet and swaying a bit, as he points his half-full goblet towards his high-ranking servants and shouts over the music at them to bring out his wife, Queen Vashti, so that he can prove once and for all who is the most beautiful woman in the land. And I imagine this would be met with roars of approval from these masses of drunken men. In verse 10, it says, On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkis, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, our text doesn't explicitly say this, but there are some Jewish traditions around this story that believe that Queen Vashti was ordered to come out not just wearing her royal crown, but to come out wearing only her royal crown. And if that's true, that would mean walking out naked in front of the entire wine-soaked male population of the capital city of Susa. And that might explain why Queen Vashti does what she does next. In verse 12, it says, But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So in a flash, the king goes from happy king to very mad king. And that can happen, actually, when you've had a lot to drink. Vashti was taking a pretty big risk here because no one was allowed to defy the king, even if his command was crude, dehumanizing, and humiliating. Unfortunately, it's a pretty classic example of how unfair things can be for women sometimes. So imagine the moment the queen refuses to come out. The tone of the party probably begins to shift pretty dramatically. Perhaps an awkward silence begins to ripple outwards as the king grows increasingly embarrassed when his command goes unanswered. And so the king, furious now, leaves the party and he has a huddle with his closest advisors and they decide that Vashti's refusal sets a dangerous precedent because after all, if the wife of even the king can define him, can defy him, then what will become of husbands throughout all of Persia? It's pretty messed up. But King Xerxes listens to his advisors and they decide that it's in the king's best interests to find a new queen. Now, no one could have known it at this point, but this decision begins to set in motion a series of events that would dramatically affect the destiny of the Jewish people living in Persia at this time. And by extension, it would go on to affect all of the people of God who would come afterwards, including the ones who are sitting in an auditorium on the corner of Morehouse Ave and Colombo Street in the year 2021. That's you. So God's unseen plan is set in motion as he uses the king's decision to further his purposes. As Queen Vashti becomes just Vashti, and the search begins for a new queen for the king. Moving on to chapter 2, starting in verse 2, it says, Then the king's personal attendants proposed... Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, so he followed it. And with this, so begins the great beauty pageant of ancient Persia. The king needs a new wife, and she needs to be more beautiful and more fair than that wretched, and rebellious Vashti. And so he sends out his officials to seek out the most beautiful women across the Persian Empire to compete in the Bachelor Persia edition. And here enters the great protagonist of our story. We have the girl who is the reason this story is called the Book of Esther, and we have her cousin who raised her like she was his own daughter. In verse five, it says, "Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon." among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So the meaning of Esther's name translates to star. And that's pretty fitting because Esther is the star of this story. And Mordecai is her lovable sidekick that often spouts words of wisdom at just the right time. And it says that Esther had a lovely figure and that she was beautiful. Now often the Bible tends to be quite conservative when it's describing the appearance of things. And so, if the Bible's saying that Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful, it means Esther was stunning. This girl was a knockout. She turned heads everywhere she went. And it would have been really, really hard for her to go anywhere and not have her beauty get noticed. Which sort of explains what happens next. In verse 8, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So Esther's beauty gets noticed by one of the king's men who were going about the empire searching for his next queen. And the way this is written, it didn't really sound like Esther had much of a choice in the matter of whether or not she would want to go. But given what happened to Vashti, it doesn't really seem like what women wanted or didn't want was really taken into account in Persian society. And so Esther is put into this situation against her will in some ways. She's put into the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, and the text goes on to tell us that for whatever reason, she seemed to be particularly well-liked by Haggai. And so he gives her extra food and beauty treatments and assigns extra female attendants from the royal palace to look after her. And this is the first of many of these seeming coincidences where Esther receives special treatment. And I think this actually does tell us something about Esther. Because there were a lot of beautiful women who were brought in who were competing to be Persia's next queen. And many scholars believe that it was Esther's character that made her stand out among the others who were there. And I think... Maybe there's something to that, because no matter who you are or what you look like, outward appearances are only going to get you so far. But if your character is humble and good-natured, then people will tend to like being around you. But if your character is haughty or selfish, then people will tend to not like being around you. So the text goes on to tell us that Esther has to undergo the standard beauty treatment for all the women who are considered to be queen. Now this treatment's pretty intense. It took 12 months to complete. And the women would have their skin treated with oils and perfumes and other cosmetics. And it was likely that they had every hair plucked from their bodies, which is a pretty uh, unpleasant experience. And if you want more details, you can probably ask Daniel, because I think he had something similar happen on his stag do. (laughs) I wasn't a part of it. I wasn't complicit. I went to bed. So meanwhile, while these beauty treatments are going on, Esther's cousin Mordecai would walk close to the palace and he would try to get some information on how Esther was going. And he had told her not to reveal to anyone that she was a Jew because Jewish people were not really looked fondly upon in Persian society. And if she were to reveal that she was a Jew, it actually could put her into jeopardy. And finally, Esther's turn to go to the king comes up and she goes to him. And this is what happens as a result. In verse 17, it says Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So just like that, Esther becomes queen of all of Persia. And on its own, this event could be chalked up to coincidence. She got lucky. Or maybe perhaps it happened simply because Esther just really was really beautiful. But when seen through the whole story, this event actually becomes one event in a series of events that seem to be orchestrated by an unseen God who is moving things around like the pieces on a chessboard. And although Esther and Mordecai don't realize it yet, they are about to become instrumental in saving the lives of all of the Jewish people in Persia. Chapter 2 of Esther closes out with yet another odd coincidence. Mordecai happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear some of the guards at the gate of the palace planning to assassinate King Xerxes. In verse 21, it says During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, and giving the credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Yikes. Kind of getting the feeling the king's not really a good dude, eh? Our protagonists could never know it at this stage, but by Mordecai overhearing this plot, it actually sows seeds of trust that will become essential to the unfolding of this plan in the time to come. And so the opening of the book of Esther, and indeed the whole book, is full of these unusual instances of favor and people seeming to be in the right place at the right time. And... Individually, you could chalk them up to coincidence, but taken together, they begin to paint this picture of how God is the one really pulling the strings rather than the king or anyone else in the story. And it's this uniquely subtle form of storytelling that makes the book of Esther so unique. It reveals to us a simple truth, and that truth is this whether God is seen, Or unseen. He is always working to bring about his purposes. And if that was true 2,500 years ago. Then it is still true for the God who is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And if Esther and Mordecai could trust God. Even when they couldn't see him directly. Well. Maybe you and I can trust him too. Would you guys stand with me? My up. thanks, guys. Our journey of faith is an interesting one, because in some ways, God is very unseen. You know, I've been walking with the Lord for 13 years. I've never had a face to face conversation with him. And while I have a few guesses, I don't really know what he looks like. You can't call him up on the phone like you can with one of your friends. And yet, the God who is so unseen can also be so clearly seen. We see it in the way that he provides for us at the midnight hour when we didn't know what we were going to do. We see it when the prayers that we prayed for years suddenly get answered. And we see it in the way our life looked before and after we met God. And we start to realize that we certainly couldn't have brought about that kind of transformation to our life. We needed God's help. It's one of his most beautiful and one of his most frustrating characteristics. But the truth is that the God that we serve is the God who is both seen and unseen. And that should give us hope tonight. Hope that no matter how clearly or how unclearly that you see God working in your life right now, that you can have hope that He is working behind the scenes to bring about His purposes. And my friends, His purposes and His plans for you are good. So maybe you're here tonight and you're in need of a little bit of hope. Hope that God is still as good as he says he was when you met him all those years ago. Hope that he is still as faithful as he was when he came through for you that time and that other time and that other time. And hope that no matter how good or how hard life is right now, that you can still find his fingerprints on the painting of your life and that there is beauty in today's mess. And if that's you, then I want to invite you to go ahead and close your eyes right now. If you need some hope tonight, close your eyes and hold out your hands just like you're receiving a gift. I'm going to invite the Lord to come and meet us tonight. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for the message of the book of Esther. We thank you that you are the God who is both seen and unseen. And that while that can be frustrating to us sometimes, that there's also great beauty in that. As you sow the seeds of faith and trust into our hearts. And so Lord, I wanna pray for my friends who are here tonight who need a fresh dose of hope. Lord, those who have been just kind of dragging themselves through the last weeks. And Lord, who have kind of, without even really realizing it, just kind of found themselves in this place where everything just kind of looks quite grim. Lord, I pray for a restoring, a restoring, a restoration of your perspective in their minds and in their hearts tonight. Lord, I pray for a restoration of the confidence that they once had in your goodness and in your plan. And Holy Spirit, as we go into this song, Lord, I pray that you would come with fresh wind and fresh fire. And Lord, that it would be like the sunshine peeking through the clouds on a rainy day that the warmth of that hope would fall upon us again and that we'd see the rainbow and we would say, you are faithful God and I can see it once more. Give us fresh hope tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.